0: You're listening to
1: OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast
0: Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. In Season 5, members discuss behavior with Alexis Hennessy. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again and listening. This week, I am with Leslie Rogers, um, LCSW, so that's a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and Leslie is going to join us and talk about her role within the Beaverton School District and a bit of what she does. Leslie, did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Uh, hi, I'm Leslie Rogers. I'm a, as as you heard, I'm an LCSW and I am a, the safety and wellness TOSA or educator on special assignment with Beaverton School District
0: safety and wellness. My goodness. Well, we will get into that. But um, so you're an LCSW. You're a licensed clinical social worker. But um, have you always practiced in schools or tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the school districts?
1: Uh, you know, thanks for asking that. I um, It took a long time to get there because I'm not I'm not that young anymore. Um, I think that my history before schools, I worked in wil- wilderness therapy. I worked in some group homes and residential treatment centers. Um, I worked in a runaway youth shelter. And really what drew me to this work is I just like teenagers. And I, I think um, even though even in my current job, I don't actually work directly with students that much. Um, those are the ones that had my heart. And um, and yeah, I, I think that's what's brought me here. I've been in school since probably 2006, I think. And, um, you know, through all of the other residential treatment and group homes and um, an inpatient psychiatric hospital. What I found is that, you know, schools are the front lines for kids. Like, kids spend more time in schools than they do um, oftentimes with their parents and in other settings. And I think if we want to make a difference in the lives of kids, I think schools are the place to be.
0: My goodness, that's so true, right? We we do, our kids spend so much time in schools and school-related activities, right? Like, almost everything is is relative to school, whether it's school friends or school after school activities or sports that are related to schools. And so there's so many points of contact for our kiddos there. And parents. Um, mm-hmm. And parents, absolutely. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what your role kind of looks like. I, I heard you say you're the safety and wellness TOSA for Beaverton. So that's the whole school district and, and supporting all the schools. Tell me what that kind of looks like. Uh, I, I, the four main areas
1: that I am responsible for are uh, suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. So that is um, implementing policies and protocols that, that help assist students that are having a, a difficult time um we have a lot of mental health staff in our schools, counselors, social workers, school psychologists, even administrators that have do. To do suicide interventions. Um, and so part of my job is to oversee the protocol and best practices to make sure that we are are doing the right things and know who to call. And, and also so that whoever is, is standing in front of a student that is really struggling with their mental health and really thinking about self-harm, and it's 3 p.m. on a Friday and their bus leaves in three minutes, yeah. which is the way that it is so very often, um, so that we, we have, have a really up. clean process of... Who they can call, what they should do, um, because it's really hard. You know, our educators are really, you know, they care about kids, and it's really can be difficult to know what to do. So um, those protocols. I also do a lot of coaching and consultation. You know, as as administrative teams or school leadership teams or counselors, social workers yeah. are standing in front of kids. They're like, I just don't know what to do with this one. Are this student's yeah. really struggling, or this one's more complicated because they're all complicated. Um, to try to just get some ideas about uh, community mental health resources, crisis resources, sure. or just how to interpret some of the, the protocols that we have. Um, other parts of my job, student threat assessment. as it may not surprise you, we, we live in a fear-based world <laughs> right now. Right. Um, Behavior is communication. Unfortunately, within that behavior is communication. A lot of things that are being communicated are threats, and threats are really scary right now, right? Like our, our kids, a lot of kids are struggling. Mm-hmm. And our our community is afraid. You know, we we hear about school shootings all the time. We hear about violence in schools all the time. So a lot of that, again, is protocols, right? Like we need to have really clean evidence-based protocols about how do we respond to threats that don't, to ensure that we're not saying just because somebody makes a threat means that they are actually planning to commit an act of violence. Right. It doesn't mean that, right? Um, I, go, I go back to I think to that's kids.
0: such a valid point, right? Yeah. That- <laughs> a kid can a kid can use some pretty significant scary language um and can really put some really intense things out there into the world and that not it doesn't always mean that that kid is actually a threat to themselves or others. But what it tells us is how severe the, the feelings, the emotions, the stress, the anxiety, the whatever that child is experiencing and naming, um, how severe those feelings are to come out in such a very, um, kind of large and intense way, right? And so I love that that concept that, you know, our kids are communicating to us. And um, I would say that by the time they communicate to us in these really big kind of threat-based ways that we've probably missed a couple of communications earlier or the communications earlier have been more covert. Would you say that that's um, sometimes true kind of when you're looking back at at situations that maybe there were some signs and signals around, along the way that, um, you know, maybe if we had better systems in place for for catching some of those, and that's like a super tall order, right? <laughs> like that's it is. That's, it I is that there's some opportunities usually when you look back at it in hindsight to go, oh, I wish maybe we had recognized this as a as a signal.
1: I think yes and no, right? Like we can look at some really scary things that have happened in our country and we can trace those kids back to ninth grade, sixth grade, fifth grade, Mm -hmm. fourth grade. Like what were the opportunities that we had to intervene? It seems like we spend so much time talking about when something really about violence happens. We talk about needing more police or needing bulletproof glass or needing something. But we very rarely talk about, let's go back 10 years and think about what would have made a difference in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What would have made a difference in like family intervention, what kind of mental health services or just support or. Education or skill building, and then the flip side of that is that we have kids that just don't think about what they say, and and sometimes they there's the consequences are so severe for not thinking about what they're saying or posting, and can create so much so much disruption to their communities.
0: You know, yeah, yeah, that's so fair. So it sounds to me like you have uh, kind of two avenues through which you work, right? It sounds like there's a bit of a reactive side of things, which is kind of the bigger incidents or responding to. To um, these singular events, right? A student who says something at three o'clock on a Friday, and the staff have to respond, right? There's there's definitely a responsive piece, but it sounds to me like you also do a fair bit of like proactive intervention or teaching folks within your district kind of how to support and be aware of some of the the ways that they can be proactive. Is is that true?
1: Yes, and I and I will say, you know, we we were getting a really good start on this before COVID, and I. I think it's continued, you know, since COVID. Um, like whose job is it to, to prevent suicide, right? Like what sort of stigma? And I, I think it's about reducing stigma, right? Like when we take kids, kids say something concerning and we send them down to the the mental health person's door, like shut door mm-hmm. and close the door because we say that that other people are not qualified or or it's not okay to say the word suicide or it's not okay to look at somebody and say, are you okay? Um, right. We just perpetuate stigma. So I think it was so much of our prevention and early intervention at this point is really, really about equipping and educating every single person in our school system to say, you are a resource for kids and you are a resource to prevent suicide. Like you are not planning an idea in somebody's head. You can look at a kid that you see every single day and notice that something is changing for them and something's not right. And look at them in their eyes with your whole heart and say, I am, I am worried about you. And I just want to know if you're thinking of suicide and that's okay.
0: Yeah. You know, I spoke with a um, a high school language arts teacher um, who uses writing as a tool to really connect with his learners and and uh, those listening to the podcast will be able to, to listen to that episode as well. And it makes me think of some of the things that he was saying around having this opportunity to engage in dialogue with the learners about what they're putting on paper, what they're communicating in journal entries or quick prompts or, um, you know, and really using it as a spot to catch some of those communications. And and that conversation came to a point um, where we talked a bit about, you know, the fact that educators don't have to be therapists, right? And I think there's this narrative that um, many educators have come uh, to the table with, and, and I understand where it comes from, right? There's a place of fear, a place of, well, that's not my training, a place of lack of understanding what to do next, lack of training on what to do next, right? So I fully understand it, but about, you know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a mental health provider, so I can't handle these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a really interesting dialogue to have because, yes, you may have come into this job as an educator, you know, to to teach content, to teach those academics, and you're a frontline point of contact with with young people um, all the way up through community college folks, right? And so, yes, you still do have to have some some knowledge or skill or confidence around what if this child or this young person discloses to me something that is kind of within the mental health realm? What do I do with that information? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? So it sounds like you put some of those systems into place for some of your educators. Can you tell us a little bit more about what types of things that looks like? I mean, is that question persuade, refer? What are we talking about? I love QPR. Um, I love that one. I do
1: love that one. Well, you know, we do a lot of training for our mental health folks through ASSIST. They teach ASSIST applied suicide mm-hmm. intervention skills training. Okay. And, um, you know, with our, our mental health folks, the ones that that kind of have to start the intervention and go all the way through the intervention, there's a lot of training and support for them. But I would mm-hmm. say for our classroom teachers and for our classified staff um, through our Vector Safe School System, there's a there's a mandatory suicide prevention module mm-hmm. now, which we thankfully got put in place about four years ago. I think mm-hmm. that's great. Um, also, now that we've put social workers in our schools, um, they are doing much more um, suicide prevention awareness education with our staff. Also mm-hmm. through ADDIES Act, which is legislation that the state of Oregon passed Um, Every school district had to write a suicide prevention policy. And part of that was what is the level of direct instruction that kids are getting? And Mm -hmm. I would say that this, I would say that this year in Beaverton School District, I'm going to knock on something right now. Um, I'm really proud of what we're doing. I'm, I'm proud of what every educator in our secondary system specifically is doing, because we set it up that um, the middle school has four direct lessons on mental health promotion, resource seeking, help seeking, wow. um, how you help a friend, um, and who do you go to when you need help yourself at school. And uh, we, we trained teachers back in August. I trained the social workers to train their teachers um, with That's some crazy. colleagues of mine to train their teachers to, pre- to present this information. And it's happening throughout the school year, three lessons in high school and four lessons in our middle schools.
0: My goodness, um, that's amazing. With
1: ongoing coaching and ongoing support because what we know is that teachers are, are scared, right? They're scared to talk about this stuff. They're scared that they're not the right ones or that they don't, that they are alone in this or that it's what too tricky. What if I give the wrong answer? What if I respond right. the wrong way, right? Will it be, you know, it, will that be like a critical mistake? And yeah. um, and I think that we're just trying to spread the message that if we can all talk about this and I, and not normalizing either. I want to be clear that it's really important that we, you know, we talk about, normalizing the struggle, but it's not to normalize suicide, you know, but we want to normalize that people are struggling. And I think this is the narrative that's changed a little bit through COVID is that we've become sort of normalized that we're all having a hard time. And I think the next step in that, what we're trying to get to is like, yes, we can normalize that the struggles are real, but we can Mm -hmm. also normalize that there's a path through it.
0: I love that clarification and distinction around the fact that we're not normalizing suicide, but we're normalizing communicating about the significance of the emotions or the experience that each person is having and really giving value to their experience, not negating it, not not saying, no, you can't feel that way, but just acknowledging those feelings and then making a plan forward from there, um, I think is so powerful to our our learners as well to know that I can say something and people are not going to, you know, react in a panic with flames and, you know, fire hoses and, and just try to knock it down, right? That people are going to say, wow, thanks for sharing that with me and, and you know, would you like my help through that or can I get get you to someone, right? Um, and I think that that's really powerful. I love hearing that there are social workers in all of your schools. Um, that is a fantastic support to have. I um, Podcast listeners will know that I um, moved here from the East Coast and when I moved here was a little shocked at um, kind of how few social workers and mental health providers we had across our schools here in Oregon. And so I'm happy to hear that that seems to be starting to shift a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role of a social worker? In oh, I'd be glad Beaverton, to. Right? Oh, I'd, be glad. Like? I'd be
1: glad to. It's actually, actually, it's really exciting. So when I yeah. look back at my my time in Beaverton School District, um, I started in 2014. And in 2015, we actually started, um, I, was, I was the support person for the support educator for that program with five social workers for all of, you know, all of our 50 some schools and 50 some programs. Five.
0: 50 something schools, wow.
1: Five social workers. And so on average, they had between 10 and 12 schools each. That and sounds
0: completely manageable. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, and a lot of, I think a lot of my job was just trying to just be like, you're okay. Like, we can do this. Like, like we're growing something, right? Like, we, we can do this. It's oh okay. Goodness. Like, trying to support and, um, and also knowing that five for 50, like it didn't meet the need, you know, like it yeah. was very, very clear. Um, thankfully in the last, you know, what has it been, five, six, seven years, there's no question that kids need more support, that families mm-hmm. need more support, that parents and guardians are needing a little bit more assistance, sort of navigating this this difficult system that we live in. Yeah. And so it was actually through our SIA funds, which we were, we were set up um, to hire a social worker for every building right before yeah. COVID hit. Um, and then we were delayed a bit um, through, through COVID. <laughs> but now we're at a place that every one of our secondary schools, every one of our middle and high schools has a full time social worker. Um, all of our title elementary schools have a full time social worker, and then our non title elementaries have a half time. Um, right. It's it's well over 50 in our system. Our, our SPED programs employ a okay. social worker, our Help Center, which are McKinney Vento program mm-hmm. employs a social worker. Like I, I would say that BSD has done done really well and just recognizing that the need is so big and trying to get the, the right help in place.
0: Yeah. And for those of you who are in districts where uh, you don't call it McKinney-Vento, some of you will call it the Homelessness Act, but the name of that act is actually the McKinney-Vento Act. So um, that's what she's referencing there. Um, that is great to hear. I, I love to hear that progress as someone who works in um, kind of intensive behavior and so knows that Social workers are crucial to the work that we do with our kiddos and families, but also as someone who has uh, two kids in school systems, I love to hear that we're shifting the direction towards social workers in schools because it really is just they're such gatekeepers of information, right? So social workers are incredibly talented in what they do. I'm not trying to negate any of the other things that they do, but truly social workers by, by profession are like gatekeepers of, of information. Just that people just don't even know is out there, right? They tend to be the collectors of all of the resources and all of the programs. And, you know, the social workers I've worked with have just had a wealth of like, Oh yeah, there's this program here through this Avenue. And let's see what we can do to get you there. And that I think is the beauty of social workers is just being able able to like warehouse all of that information for folks that come to them and say, I have this learner who, and having the social worker pull out, you know, their bag of resources and say, oh, absolutely. These resources seem like they're the best. Let's, let's chip away at them. Let's see which one is the right fit. Um, oh, I love hearing you say
1: that. I love hearing you say that. And I'm biased. I am a, you know, <laughs> I'm a social worker by training, so I'm, I'm biased. And I, I also, I you know, I, I think that we, between school psychologists, school counselors, and school social workers, it is sort of the, the trifecta yeah. of mental health support, you know? Mm-hmm. So we have, I mean, we have social workers that will chase, you know, our elementary social workers might be standing in the street trying to keep a, a little a, a little guy from running into traffic, yeah. you know, and doing all of that. And I, but I, I also think that the magic of social workers is exactly what you said. It is, it is understanding family systems and mm-hmm. working side by side with parents and guardians to try to navigate um, the resources that they need to, to help. And sure. I, I think that we as educators get so sort of caught or boxed into this eight to four land of inside mm-hmm. the walls of a school building. And, you know, when I talk to social workers in, that are out in our schools and they say, hey, I'm, I have a home visit at three o'clock, like I'm gonna go yeah. sit on a sofa with a parent, like that is where it's at, right? Like yeah. that is a demonstration of yeah. caring that we as a school system, we care about your kid, we care about you. And we know that if we support parents, like if we really wanna support kids, we need to support parents.
0: Well, and seeing that through line that supporting parents, supporting kids, supporting families, supporting communities gets us better academic outcomes. It's how we get that higher level engagement, right? If you're not worried about what you're eating that night, or if if mom is working four jobs just to try to pay the rent, or if dad is currently in another state working a job because, you know, got to get that money somewhere and there's no jobs locally or whatever it is, that's all going to weigh really heavy on our learner's when they try to show up to school each morning and be active and engaged in whatever you're asking them to do. Right. And so um, understanding that, yes, we may show up from eight to four, but if we truly want to be working with those, those learners and the families and getting that high level academic engagement we've got to start with that whole child approach right and i think that mm-hmm. the the social workers do a nice job of bringing that to light um i will say that i'm also biased because i've been trained up by a number of really phenomenal social workers around the way so my my behavior analyst approach is through a very mental health and social work lens so we can sit here and chat about our bias for social workers all totally. day and um, i'm married so, to a
1: school counselor too so i have to say like they they've been trying they've been, been trying to do well. all of the things for all of the time.
0: And I'm actually yeah. just so thankful that they have help now. That oh, yeah, I agree teamwork, teamwork is how this happens, right? There's no one person that solves any of these problems alone. Um, you know, I heard you say the parents and families. So obviously you're supporting, um, you know, educators and, and our support staff and our administration and all of that. But does your department also do some work with educating families, what to look for, how to respond? Do you all get the opportunity to work with the community or the families or the, the school district um, families and giving knowledge and power there to, to those folks as well?
1: Yes, um, and I was trying to think as you're talking, I was trying to think of some different examples of that. We have offered some QPR trainings to parents, mm-hmm. and we're actually about to ramp that up. Um, we have a, a couple of social workers within our district now, um, including including a Spanish-speaking social worker, because so, we know that's a gap, yeah. is that our education to Spanish-speaking parents and parents that speak other, other languages other than English um, has been a gap for us. So we are actually in process of ramping that up, but we do offer some QPR trainings for parents and other community members at night. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do just a lot of messaging and outreach yeah. about this. Like with the Addies Act lessons, there's, you know, a, we, have, we have a folder of all the communications that need to go to parents about that, like the look fors, right? Like we talked about yeah. through World Mental Health Day, which was on October 10th. Like what are the social media posts that should happen on every single school's Platforms, right? Yeah. That talk about like, hey, you can ask the question. This is a good thing, you know. Talking about suicide doesn't increase risk. It doesn't plant the idea. of Just uh, trying to dispel some yeah. myths. Um, so our approach right now is, is I would say, multi pronged, and just trying mm-hmm. to to keep it to keep it up, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I love to hear that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw kind of a question at you that you might need a second to think about, and that's okay. Um, but you know, Beaverton is a pretty diverse place. And so how have you and your team worked on understanding kind of the cultural relevance of some of these mental health um, needs, right? Talking about suicide in some cultures is, is, you know, very, very taboo, while in others it's, you know, becoming less taboo as people um, talk about it more and more. But it's not, you know, it's not there's no, there's no monolith, right? We can't just say like, well, everybody should be able to, to normalize this conversation, right? Because there's some cultural pieces to, to consider there. Um, Being that you support so many schools, so many kids, right? 50 schools, I heard you say, how are you and your team really working to make sure that that messaging and the, and the support you're giving to educators is, um, you know, respective of the families that you serve? I get a lot of these phone calls actually, yes. you know, we
1: have, when I look at, when I look back, back at the history of suicides, right? Like I could go one by one, you know, because every school district has them and big ones have more than others. I, I think mm-hmm. that that we're fortunate that we've had five in the last eight years. Um, but several of those were for, from um, kids of color for Asian descent. Um mm-hmm. Where we can go back and and really identify that there were adults that were worried about these kids in the school system, um, yeah. and there were barriers to communication and you know maybe some missteps, but with people doing their best to try to yeah. to do what we do, which is to say, hey, I'm I'm calling you parent because I'm worried about your child. And I'm gently. And I I think this is maybe one of the biggest difference. I I think that in white dominant culture, we do a lot of this sort of gentle, like, hi, I'm just so worried, you know, and trying to just gently lead families to a conclusion that maybe they should seek some counseling or seek mental health treatment or something. And so So part of that is trying to coach some of our counselors and social workers and administrators, like, what do we do? Like, what are the words that we use when we are are um, are met with resistance or minimizing or confusion? Um, And then how do we have conversations about academic pressure with parents when we know that sometimes this like pressure, right, like that it is a a lot about academics or stress, right, Um, and that that is the contributor and knowing that there are some cultural implications in there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, direct communication, that's part of it. Um, trying to recommend folks and, and, you know, and then I could throw out a solution. And then I, I think that there's also challenges with that. Right. Because we can try yeah. to find um, culturally specific mental health providers. Right. Like yeah. um, I, I know that Chinese is your family's first language. We have a Chinese therapist. And then some of what we hear back, you know, like that we can refer you to that takes your insurance and I can help you do yes. that. And some of the pushback that we get from that is that some of our communities are small and mm. there's some yeah. shame, right? Like there's some shame, yeah. like, oh, well, maybe this family knows that therapist and doesn't, you know, sure. doesn't want to interact there. So I, I think that we can't shy away from it mm-hmm. um, and that sometimes the approach is different and we need to call in experts, right? So we, we yeah. sometimes consult with OHSUs, um, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name. It's okay. their intercultural psychiatry clinic. And I might have totally butchered that. So I apologize. But no you know, as we look back, like, what are the strategies? What are those stigmas? Like, what are the beliefs that certain cultures hold around mental health and suicide so that we can determine what the best approach to really help a family to understand that their child is in danger and we are seeing it? Um, and sometimes that's that message can be strong. And I want to, you know, like sometimes when we're like, no, this won't happen. And, and sometimes I have to tell counselors to say like, hey, you need to let this parent know that kids exactly like theirs that are facing the exact same stressors sometimes die by suicide. Yeah. Do I say that? I'm like, yes, we need to say that. That's a, and that's a weighty we statement, right? Yeah, we need to be as respectful. We need to meet them where they are. If we need to go to their home, if we need to bring an interpreter, even if even if the family says I'm fine in English, do we need to bring interpreters like what are the best ways with respect and care? Can we really say this is this is absolutely a big deal that has life or death consequences?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing to talk and think about. Right. And I think that this applies not only across culture, but also across socioeconomic status. Right. That if we move further from the metropolitan areas. Right. To these smaller communities that have less resources. I know you and I are both in pretty metropolitan areas. But, you know, this podcast goes out to all of Oregon. Right. And so we've got these pockets of educators doing the best that they can that don't have social workers in schools that may not even have a full time counselor in their schools that may be, you know, two, three, four teachers running an entire uh, district right, in some of these smaller areas. Um, and, and it's just, you know, these are the folks that are going to be doing this work regardless of whether there's a social worker on staff or not, regardless of either than if there's a social worker within their entire, you know, town. Um, and so recognizing that there are resources out there that you can call, even if you do need to call into the metropolitan area and kind of get some of that coaching um, to be able to bring it to your very small little district. I think that... Um, hearing that that these are things we need to be aware of, how we deliver these messages and. Being direct with what we're talking about not always being gentle in our approach is going to be the best fit for the person that we're calling that might not get the message across clearly. And um, knowing how to gauge that response, you know, do I need to be direct with this family or do I need to be gentle and handhold? What is going to make sure that the message really gets home to this specific family about their child um, is, is so important, I think. Um and requires a lot of collaboration, right? Because yes, um, yes, never alone.
1: Right. I mean, that's what I will say to every single person, every single person that I talk to is that this is too much for one person. Like we have to consult, consult, and we all have, we have our own stuff, you know, like we have our own, like many of us have, you know, like suicide is a really scary place for lots of people, you know, like most people are touched by suicide in some way. So it can just be really overwhelming and frightening to know exactly what to do and exactly what to say in every situation. And so I think the collaboration and the consultation is critical.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Leslie, you know, that leads me to kind of a question um, to kind of start rounding out our our episode here is Beaverton is lucky to have so many social workers. They're certainly lucky to have you at the helm of of coordinating all of these folks, but not all of our districts around here have that. Not all of our districts around Oregon have social workers or as many social workers or even counselors. Um, Where would you point some of our listeners if they want to dig in more to, you know, what what does suicide risk and, and ideation look like in, in learners in the classroom? What can I as an educator be looking out for? What training can I take or what book can I read or what podcast can I listen to? Other than obviously this one. Um, but what, what can I do as, you know, a sole person coming in front of kids every day? Where can I start
1: such a, that's such a great question, and I do think there that there's some COVID wins in this regard as well. I think there's mm-hmm. some COVID wins that there are more virtual resources and virtual trainings sure. than ever existed before. So you had mentioned question persuade refer, which is QPR, which is mm-hmm. about, it can, it can be anywhere from one and a half to two and a half hours. I think it is yeah. excellent. I think that if anybody Googled, how do I find a virtual QPR online? You know, yeah. how do I find one?
0: Well, make sure to put it in the show notes. I think yes. they're offered by a lot of the counties at this point they too,
1: right? They, okay, they are. And they can be offered virtually. So some of those suicide trainings, because they're just, they just have such a sensitive topic, um, are okay. only offered. In person, but QPR can be offered online. There's also um, youth mental health first aid training or adult mm-hmm. mental health first aid training, which I think okay. can be really helpful. People can people can seek that out. Um, I also, you know, I, as we start talking about helplines, right, like yeah. crisis lines and helplines, there are so many uh, population or demographic specific help. Mm-hmm. Places, right? Like places to call. Um, You're probably aware that the suicide prevention line changed to 988, right? Like, so now we have, you know, 911 for life or death.
0: Yeah. And I mentioned in another episode, but I'll mention it again here. um, 988 will not work if you um, don't have a local area code. So um, if you are using a cell phone that has an area code that is not local to your area, um, try to find a landline or find a different cell phone. Um, I learned via using it that um, my out of state area code. Pings me to an out-of-state helpline um, because they assume that that's where I'm calling from. So just oh I, you know I'm users. actually going to write that down. I did not know that. And how many yeah. of us have out-of-state area codes this
1: time? At yes. this time in our tech, you know, in our society, yes. that's so. Yeah. So time. opt
0: opt for that landline or grab a, a cell phone that has a local area code or no to ask for them to to put you through to your local. Um, but the one. The 1866 number, the original helpline number, will put you local regardless. Um, You can get your access that way. So, just so our listeners know about that, but keep going. I
1: I would also say, like, Trevor, like Trevor Project. um, or the text to teen line. Um, I, you know, like getting online and saying, what are the, Mm -hmm. what are the suicide prevention resources in my community? There is so much, there really is so much out there. If you look for educators, actually, here's a really good resource for educators that do not have, um, the resources or districts that do not have the resources to put together suicide prevention lessons. There is a wonderful resource called Erica's lighthouse Mm. Um, that actually offers free support to school districts around suicide prevention wow. programming. Erica's Lighthouse—that's Erica with a K. It's okay. It's we'll really make sure helpful. to get that into the show notes as well. It's really helpful. So I, I do think that as a as a society, that people are recognizing what that this that this is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're all just still scrambling to try to figure out how to meet it, knowing that post COVID, our kids are really struggling. And our adults are struggling which actually brings me to a really important point yeah. you heard me say earlier that we need to support parents to support kids I get way too many calls about parent suicides. What should I yeah. do about this? How should we handle this? How should we support the children? Should we, do we tell the class? Do we do all these things? And it reminds me every single time, I'll go back to it. We want to take care of kids. We got to take care of parents, which means if Absolutely. we have an opportunity to sit in front of a struggling parent, we should also ask them. Like We should also and- be brave enough to say, like I'm, I'm concerned
0: and I want to know if suicide is something that's on your mind. And I would say that the same thing goes of our staff, right? Yes. um, Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Absolutely. No, I mean, we always focus on supporting the kids and their families, right? And uh, we are working harder on supporting families at a much higher rate as well. But um, be aware of your colleagues, right? Be aware of these signs, um, particularly post-COVID, right? Like these are, um, as we come back into the schools we, we keep saying post-COVID, but COVID is still here. It's still happening. The, the mm-hmm. outcomes of people who lost um, family members, people who had COVID and are dealing with long COVID symptoms, people who were isolated for two years um, and are just now kind of figuring out how to come back into the community maybe forced into their job every day, eight to four, but really be struggling. So um, not, not just our, our students and our families, but each other, right? So making sure that we've always got that Well, I think as as
1: kids have sort of lost community with, you know, like we are spending a whole lot of time trying to figure out how to teach kids to be back in community with each other. I, I don't know that the adults are necessarily used to being back in community with each other either, right? You know, yeah, I would so agree. <laughs> those, so these things that we are doing for kids to try to build those connections, because human connection is the number one preventer of suicide. Are we doing yeah. those same things for, for the adults in our system? Are we, doing, are we doing those same things for our staff? Are we checking in on them? Are we creating opportunities for connection and community building is just as important. It's such a great
0: question. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. This was such a lovely conversation. I've appreciated um, being able to to ask you all these questions and have you bring your your clearly depth of knowledge. We, I think, barely even touched on, um, kind of what you have to offer. And, and I appreciate it so much. I appreciate you sharing resources with our listeners on where they can go if they don't have, um, the beauty of a team of social workers in their district. I'm hoping that more and more of our districts get there and are able to find the funding sources to bring in more social workers and counselors and all the folks that can collaborate at such high levels to support our kids and families. And I'm going to leave our listeners with what I always leave you with, which is please remember that we can only care for our students and our families if we are caring for ourselves. So take time to relax, to refresh, to regroup, to reach out for help, and come back and listen to us next time. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us this week. Was there anything you wanted to leave our listeners with? Uh, Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I just uh, show up for each other. I think that's the most important message.
0: Agreed. All right, y'all. See you next time. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.